0: Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, July 31st, we are studying Psalm 149. In today's text, the psalmist calls upon the people of God to praise their Maker and their King as he vindicates them in the sight of the nations. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Rev. Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Church churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He is also the author of the recently published book, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story, available from Concordia Publishing House. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Thanks, as always, it's good to be with you, my friend, and greetings and welcome to our listeners in the name of the crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come.
0: So Pastor Philippek, the title of your book, life in Christ rooted, woven, and grafted into God's story. As we as Christians are rooted, woven,
1: and grafted into God's story, how should we be making use of the Psalms? The Psalms are a very, very important part of that story, because the Psalms today especially, we're going to see a whole lot that is part previously of that story, and yet we're kind of in in the middle of that story of Old Testament and New Testament, We have such things as old songs that we'll be singing today that have their roots in the Exodus, and new songs that have their roots in Jesus and the very presence of God here in the flesh of Jesus, and later on there in eternity, the book of Revelation, things like that. So there's a lot of connections there, and there's a lot of connections in our daily life in Christ in terms of both in the divine service, which in chapter 8 of Eight of my book, I sort of walk through in a narrative fashion that divine service and how the psalms are a very important part of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of salvation. And wouldn't you know it, this particular psalm today makes its way in multiple ways into the liturgical setting that we see? But it's just it's it's good be as a whole, just generally, because these psalms are in the day-to-day lives of the people. It's not always in worship, but sometimes in the day-to-day lives. And day-to-day lives are really really joyous and really, really sorrowful. So one minute you can be singing the praises of God, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know, this, these psalms. And the next minute you could be like lamenting that those Psalm 77, where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? When I think of you, I cry out, my bones, they break. I may moan, what shall I do? Because you're not answering, I, I will do this. I will remember the goodness of the Lord. So these, these psalms, they are very intimate conversations With God, they're very intimate songs that are sung by the people of God, and they are echoed on our lips today. They teach us even how to suffer and rejoice as the body of Christ and as a Christian who lives their life always in Christ, in the divine service, and then out of the doors on a day-to-day basis on uh, any vocation that God gives us. So
0: with those things in mind about the Psalter as a whole, talk to us more specifically about Psalm 149. What kind of context, historical background, any information that we need to help us look at this psalm today?
1: Here's the real technical answer on the author and date and background. I, I Listen very carefully. I don't know. I say that because we really aren't given much. Well, well, I'll give you a better answer than that. but, But really, the best that we can do is take a look at the text itself, see what it's doing, and make our best guess as to where this fits into the life of God's people. And when I do that, it's not that I don't know. I have a, actually a very highly educated guess based upon some of the things that I see in the text. So I think we have a, a, a better dating. Uh, we can do a little better than I don't know the author or the date, even though that's true. I would tend to say the best scholarship that we see on this in the text, the way that it says things, the way that it rejoices in things, the way that it articulates things, Uh, the best guess is that it's written really during the time of the restoration from Babylonian captivity. You know, I would join this psalm into the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple, the release of captivity, and them coming back to the mountain of God, to Jerusalem, to the temple. The language itself is very, I think, indicative of that. And so, this is part of what is traditionally called the Alleluia or translated Praise the Lord psalmody. This is the fourth of five, and it comes at the end of the Psalms. This the first one was what, uh, Psalm 146, I believe, on that. And then th- that context, if it is in fact the restoration, then this is a psalm not sung individually, not. Not a personal lament or rejoicing, but this is a song for all the people of God to be sung upon their lips as they process back from captivity to the temple itself. And in that context, then, the psalm is a rejoicing of the victory of God over the enemies that they had been imprisoned in for 70 years that they are actually now at long last allowed to to, and this really fits in with the theme of, of the book Life in Christ. Enter in once again to the divine presence of God. To dwell once again with God in the place where he once put his name in the promised land. So I think the best way to think of this as a quick picture is sort of a victory song to be sung during a victory parade. You know, on the way home from battle, you sing this song. And so with that in mind... When you think about the psalm in that context, it's pretty awesome then to see how the church has it incorporated into its life in Christ, right? So we live this psalm out together as the church, the body of Christ throughout all of Christendom. Each and every time we celebrate a couple of things. One, All Saints Day. This appears as part of the All Saints Remembrance. We ...who feebly struggle remembering those who have gone before us, yet they in glory shine. But all are one in Christ, and all are his together as the body, and one day we will be forever free, right? They who sow in tears shall reap and joy. There is that yet... There breaks a more glorious day when the saints triumph and rise in, in brighter ways. So you have that context of All Saints Day, that hope and victory of triumph, still in the midst of battle and marching forward toward that ever-increasing presence of God. And then you also have this in Easter 5, right? The fifth Sunday in Easter, this is the three-year lectionary, lectionary A, you have this up here in Easter 5. So a very triumphant, a very victory. Christ is risen from the dead. He's conquered our enemies of sin and death and the devil. That appears in Lectionary A. And then as a whole, I find it very, very interesting that even in our own Lutheran confessions, you see this verse appear in one of the chief articles of the faith, Article 7, when we are defining who the church is And so I I do this as well in in Life in Christ. This is where Psalm 149 would appear as well in in this whole aspect of who the church is. And when you answer that question, who the church is, um, Augsburg Confession Article 7 says the church is the congregation or the assembly of the saints. Listen for that word assembly of of the godly assembly of the saints today in the text, because that's where this is. The assembly of the saints in which the gospel is purely preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. The one year also attaches this to Easter, the one year lectionary. So this is just a beautiful proclamation of the victory of Christ, even in the midst of battle, as we march forward nearer to the presence of God. Yeah, I mean,
0: a a fitting psalm to show up toward the very end of the Psalter to hear about the Lord's victory, after so many psalms have prayed against the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, to hear that he has won the victory here toward the end of the Psalter. Very, very appropriate. So, with no further ado, let's take a look at the text. This is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 149. Pastor Philippek, before we look at details within the psalm, give us maybe the bird's eye view of the psalm. Is there a structure to it? How would you organize the the main movements within the psalm?
1: Certainly. And before I get to that, let me make one correction at a miss spoken statement that I made in terms of the one-year lectionary. My mind was going and my mouth was going to vest. It doesn't appear in the one-year lectionary in Easter. It appears at the end of the church year. Ah. And that's the other thing I wanted to highlight, that it's all the triumphant aspect. And I I went too quickly with Easter and all of those things, which were three-year lectionaries, but the one year puts it at the uh, end of the church year. This is one of the final psalms that we we do as we wait for our Lord to come. And that's really what this is about. The structure is a triumphant victory, The first part of this, I would say, even all the way up through verse five, you have this whole fact that God has actually done something that causes and will cause, or is doing something that will cause his people to rejoice and his people to be glad and his people to praise and dance and take, that God actually takes pleasure in his people to the fact that he defeats his enemy, their enemies, and ultimately then his enemies. And then there is also this, so you got this, here's the fullness of it, and then you also have this fullness telescope to not just now, but there's this not yet component, um, because they, remember, they're walking along the road. So then the psalm makes a, a stark turn because they haven't finally yet gotten to back into, into Jerusalem in the temple. They're only on the processional there. So they're even though the victory has been won and they have been set free, They have yet to enter into this city. So that's where you get the shift in language, seven to nine, and you get this more warfare language. So you have this almost now the victory is ours. We are now free and we are on the way to the city of God where we shall dwell with him. And then not yet because we're still walking there. And so there's enemies that could attack it at any instance. Mm. All
0: right, so with that larger picture in mind, let's look at some of the details. As you noted from the outset, this is a hallelujah psalm. We have praise the Lord both at the beginning and the end of this psalm. That is the word hallelujah. And then right after that, at the outset, sing to the Lord a new song. So talk to us about this new song.
1: The fact that the words new song actually exist in the text should cause you to scratch your head because the word new means that there must have been something that came before that that was old so before we get to the new song what what in the world is the old song well this too is the beauty of what god does for a few people back in the old testament what he does and what he does now in the in the new testament for all people in the person and work of christ so to stick with what we were talking about One of the big things that we sing in Easter is the old song. And the old song is the intro. It is kind of sung in that LSB 925. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. But that song was actually the song of Moses after he led his God's people through the Red Sea, and God drowned the enemies in the Red Sea, yet the people of God were led through on dry ground. So the old song is that song of Moses, that great salvific event that runs through the Old Testament where God frees his people, Israel, from their slavery in Egypt, through the blood of the Lamb leads them through the Red Sea, that they may be God's people, that he may lead them to the promised land, that they may be his God, and, he may, and that may, they may be his people, and God may be their God. And so that's the old song. Well, the new song, if I were to trace through this in the scriptures, the new song actually appears in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 8, and 9 says this, and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp a golden bowl of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to open the scroll to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by the blood you ransomed people from god every tribe every nation every, every language so the new song is the song, I would say, of heaven now that Christ has come, the song of the angels, and we sing it in two very different ways. In the church, we sing the song of triumph in Revelation, the feast of Easter. This is the feast, or this is the feast of either one of those. Those are actually the songs of triumph in Revelation. At the judgment day, that is what we sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, you who were slain and now who ransomed your people with your own blood. But there's also that not that. So that's the final triumph, the victory when we're God's presence. But if you want to get to the now not yet component, it's also a similar song to that of the angels who appear to the shepherds while they are keeping watch over their flock by night. Glory to God in the highest and on peace on earth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right, And so this whole aspect of the songs of the angels, God is doing something new. He did, for a few people, save them from their slavery from the Egyptians. But now this new thing that God is doing is saving all people from their slavery, not to Egyptians, but to sin and death and the devil and he's going to do it in the remarkably consistent way that he did for in the Old Testament in the old song he's going to do it through the shedding of the blood of the lamb.
0: Hmm. yeah well and thinking about the the potential context of this being something for the children of Israel coming out of exile then they are invited to think about that deliverance as a new exodus And that's a, I mean that's a pretty key theme that you see traced throughout the scriptures it's in it's in Isaiah the prophets talk this way that the Lord's going to to bring about another Exodus. And then thinking through the way that Jesus speaks on the the Mount of Transfiguration, I think it's Luke that tells us that that Jesus is there talking with Moses and Elijah about his Exodus. So that's the that's the reason that the Exodus motif shows up so often in, in our Easter hymnody and in, in our worship, because this is the final exodus, the ultimate freedom, the new song that we sing continually about that, and it's not a. We made this point previously in, a, in another psalm that mentions a new song. It's not a new song in the sense that you're always singing something different every every Sunday, but new song in the sense that God has done something new in in what He's done through Jesus' death and resurrection.
1: Absolutely, this is the predominant theme of the Exodus. This is also the theme of what you said of the person and work of Jesus. This is that. Um, type and shadow, from shadow to reality aspect, what God does for a few people in Jesus, he does for all people, or a few people in the Old Testament, he does for all people in Jesus Christ. So you see that exodus being something new that God is doing in the person work of Jesus. And yet there is an older component even than Moses to it. God is remarkably consistent in how he works, but this is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam in the garden. And so the people of God having been freed from Babylonian captivity, are eagerly expecting a new exodus, a celebrating of the work of the coming Messiah that will set them free.
0: Mm. So the people of God are called to sing this new song, they're to do that in the assembly of the godly, you were mentioning that the way that the Lutheran confessions speak concerning the Church... And this, this joy from this singing is clear, especially in the first three verses of the psalm. Let Israel be glad. Let the children of Zion rejoice. Let them praise. Let them dance. Let them make melody with instruments. Why
1: all this joy? Absolutely. And just a, a, a side note for the assembly, the assembly of God here in the Old Testament, but Hebrews calls this the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven so when we start talking about those things in hebrews and things like that you see the connection to the presence of god there in in heaven in that great and glorious day but they should be glad they should rejoice they should dance this one always makes me makes me laugh a little bit the dance and make melodies because this is used in so many terribly weird ways <laughs> in pop culture in the church, but yeah, we can maybe get into some of that. But they should be glad, they should rejoice, they should dance, they should make melody, um, for two very important reasons. First is the fact that God actually made them, cares for them, and still takes care of them, their their normal day-to-day lives, even they're in captivity and has set them free. And so being set free, they can they can now continue in their life here in time. But notice the attachment to the word king right? That aspect of God, their king, the king who rules over them. This is huge because in terms of the reason they went into slavery, their kings were terrible. They abandoned God left and right, and they made them trust in other gods. You know, it talks about prostituting yourself or whoring after Baal and Asherah and all of these different things, but God is going to be back in their midst. He's going to rule over them. This is the prophecy. I would say, you know, people want to always jump when they hear this to Philippians, and things like that about, you know, rejoice in the Lord always again. I'll say it rejoice. But I, I, I think that's too quick of a jump. I think you need to see that before you see it in Philippians. You need to see it in the prophets. And one of the best prophets who, who articulates this particular vision is none other than, than Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 14 through 20, he talks about um, the same thing. Sing. Aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice with an exultant heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment. Well, that's the judgment of captivity on your sin. He's cleared away the enemies, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the king of Israel. The Lord himself is in your midst. Notice that presence of God theme again that we've been talking about um, here and, you know, in previous ones and in in the book Life in Christ. All that stuff, the, the presence of God in the midst. You shall never again fear evil. And I love verse 17 he says, the Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival, that festival, that march to the temple so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. So now we get into you know, verses six, seven, eight, and nine of, of the Psalm. So this is the articulation of, of Zephaniah that the fulfillment of Zephaniah's vision is is happening. God is in the midst. He is present, his king. He is a mighty savior who who frees them. And that should cause them to rejoice because they've been crying out in the waters of Babylon, and God has been silent for 70 years, deafeningly silent, and now they are being free. So God is giving them a reason to, to be glad, to rejoice. To dance and to make melody.
0: So, you're not dancing in, in church on Sunday morning, Pastor Philippe?
1: No. So, the, you know, I laugh at this one. This is the, oh, so, so pop culturally, pop culturally. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. I saw it um, years ago. I've seen it a couple times. Even I think the last time I watched it was in college. But I remember this weird argument being made in Footloose by Kevin Bacon as to why, it, you know, all oh, this preacher and all this, you shouldn't dance and all this. And Kevin Bacon actually, like, cites Psalm 149 that says, it's okay that we can dance in public. And it's like, well, that's not what this psalm was about. This psalm isn't about dancing in public. And then you have in the church, those who would reference, see, we should be doing liturgical dances and things like that. And, uh, and it's like, no, 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 this is in the context of a procession before you even get into worship. Right. This is before you enter the temple. So when I think of dancing in this one, I don't think of liturgical dance, I don't think of public dances in the streets or something like that. I actually think of David when the ark is being led back to Israel and he's dancing in joy before it, you know, shouting and leaping for joy. And this is what I would say is the most um Quickest and poignant reference to to what that dancing should be like. Now, interestingly enough, when you delve in that story, and I, I, I'm probably just going to bring this up and, and leave it, uh, but this is actually his dancing is part of the disdain of his wife Michal, and so she just can't can't fathom this. But David is so overjoyed that. His, that the presence of God is now coming to Jerusalem, and he's going to put his name and dwell with his people, that he mm. just leaps and exults with joy.
0: Mm. You know, it's, it's striking to, to get the reference to Dancing with David, well known as Israel's king. That's one of the, the ways you... I mean, we talk about him as King David, and and yet in the psalm, the good news is that the Lord is reigning as king, and you, you emphasize that very very wonderfully, and I think that very much connects us to the way Jesus preaches in the Gospels. Over and over again, he talks about what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. What, what he's telling us is not so much about a, a place, what, what it's like to, to live in a certain set of boundaries, but rather, what is it like when God reigns as your king? And as you pointed out, that's very, very joyous news to know that God is reigning as our king and not some other tyrant who, who means us harm rather the one who means us only good.
1: Yeah, I think this is absolutely the case, and just to the rule and reign of God in this one. Um, Mark, his gospel in opening, not with the birth narrative of Jesus, but with, with that fact of one who comes after me, St. John the Baptist says, "Will, who I'm not worthy to stoop down and, and untie. He will baptize you with, with fire and the Holy Spirit and all that good stuff. And then immediately in the next context, it says... Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, then, is the, raci- the gracious reign and rule of God and his presence. So the question becomes, what happens when God, in Christ, comes near to illness and disease? It's healed. What happens when God comes near to a creation that's gone awry and is seeking to topple a boat with the disciples in it? It is calmed. What happens when God comes near to, when he is present in the midst of, say, the devil and demonic possession? He is cast out. What happens when God comes near to death? It is undone, for he is the resurrection and the life. And that's what you see. The presence of God in the person and work of Jesus, that's the kingdom of God. And it's all about God coming near to all of these things and being their king.
0: Yeah, and that is cause for joy for the people of God, that God reigns as their gracious King through Jesus Christ. We're going to keep looking at Psalm 149 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Philippek this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
2: Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right! LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 31st. We're studying Psalm 149 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Phillippec. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran churches both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Phillipek, prior to the break, we made it through the first three verses of Psalm 149. In verse four, it seems there's a bit of a pivot there where we hear now what the Lord has done. It says, "The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And then from there, again, there's going to be let the people of God respond in this way. So take us into what it says there about what the Lord has done in verse 4.
1: The words take pleasure in have shown up earlier in our conversation concerning Zephaniah's prophecy and their return to Jerusalem and the temple from Babylonian captivity. Rejoice over you with singing and quiet you, with that love. So God does take the light and pleasure in his people. The question is, who are his people? In the Old Testament, you think, well, that's Israel. But yeah, not as we go forward, because not all of Israel is redeemed. Not all of Israel is brought back. There is a remnant always of Israel. And that carries through even into the New Testament We talk about, you know, the book of Romans, Paul talks about who Israel is and who his people is. But I think the most effective way to understand um, in this verse who his people are is to connect it to the word humble. To be humble means to recognize your estate in life. not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to say in Proverbs and in other Psalms and i think not highly of your more highly of yourselves than your ought i would matrix this text and connect it to first john chapter 1 in the liturgy if you say you have no sin you deceive yourself you're prideful you're haughty there's no truth in you but if you confess your sin god who is faithful and just will forgive you give your sins i tell you there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. So Jesus carries this humility theme through very, very pointedly. And those who confess their sins, those who recognize that they are a sinner, those who know that they are last and least likely ever to get into the kingdom of God. Those who are last will be made first, but only because the one who was first became a last mm. for us. And so we, we have this whole connection with a broader depth and understanding. The Those who are humble are those who are sinners who acknowledge and confess that. Those who say, yep, we deserve to go into Bapti- Babylonian captivity. But you, Lord, have promised. You promised to bring us back. You promised that there was a coming Messiah. You promised you were going to set us free. Fulfill that promise. And the Lord adones those with the fulfillment of that promise. That is His... Salvation. And that word adornment is very, very specific. We don't really talk about too much the words of adornment. When you talk about adornment, obviously it's clothing language, and clothing language tends to be very oh, I would say very specific, but also very narrow in its focus throughout the Old and New Testament. You have the clothing back after they sin and they, they recognize that God clothes them, their shame, right? And all of that with the animal skins. And yet more than that, God has clothed us here and now with the, the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the, se- the sin of the world. You can go to Revelation seven on this one, and then we'll kind of backtrack to how this works out. But who are these who are clothed in white robes? This is our All Saints Day text in conjunction with um, Psalm 149. Who are these who are clothed in white robes, and where do they come from? These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So to be clothed, to be adorned in salvation means to be covered with the blood of the lamb, to be covered with that animal skin. And when you look at those things in connection, this is the case for the Old Testament, right? I mean, you look at things like Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah 39, you get this language most pointedly, I would say, in connection to marriage and what God is going to do for his people in the Old Testament, and even in the New. So Jeremiah 39, or 39, 31, I'm sorry, I just said that. Um, 31, four to six says, again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines and go forth and dancing and merrymakers, and you again shall plant vineyards on the mountains. So notice he's ta- Jeremiah's prophesying a return to Mount Zion, an adornment again in in wonderful clothing and dancing, and dancing and tambourines and all of these things that are here in Psalm 149 the, and calling it, O Virgin Israel, O Bride uh, uh, Israel, Bride of Israel or the Bride Israel would probably be a better translation of that. That connects very, very closely then as you follow that to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice that gave himself up, that cross, that blood language again comes comes up, that he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy, that he might cleanse her by washing of water and the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such. So you you get this image of, of the church being adorned in a wedding garment. A wedding garment first given, well, if you connect it all the way through to Galatians, this is the robe of Christ's righteousness in the waters of baptism that was given to you, your wedding garment. It's the wedding garment that is spoken of in Matthew 22, almost at the end, when so many people have rejected Jesus and no one hardly believes him to be the Messiah. They oppose that. He talks about how the, that gracious call to believe in him has gone out to many people, and many people have rejected it. And it's in the parable of this, this wedding feast. He says in, in verses 8 through 13 of 22, the servants, the wedding feast is ready, and those who were invited, so here's that Israel of old, were not worthy. Therefore, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many. Notice how it's, it's not just Israel anymore. It's, it's all people, right, that you can find. And those servants went to the roads. They gathered. They found both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came to look at the guests, he sees a man with no wedding garment, right? Mm. Those who are not clothed in the wedding garment that the king himself provides. And he says, friend, how did you get in here? without the wedding garment, and this guy's speechless. He can't answer before that um, that righteous judge, that, that father who's coming down. And then he, the king says to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out of the darkness. In that place there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. So this this aspect of adorn, God is going to adorn you. He's going to make you righteous and holy. He's going to remove from you that sin that has separated you for him, from him for so long, the sin in which you went into slavery, he's going to bring you back into his presence through the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts and lintels of the cross that you might pass over from death to life eternal with him in his kingdom.
0: I love the connections that you were making to Genesis 3 and Revelation 7, and especially thinking through Genesis 3 and the connection that we see here in verse 4, that he adorns the humble with salvation. You think about Adam and Eve after they first sinned. They tried to make clothes for themselves, and so in, in their pride, they, they made the clothes of fig leaves, which weren't very good clothes at all. It's only when we, in humility, confess our sins that God gives us clothes that actually are true adornment, clothes of salvation. If, if we remain proud, then the only clothes that we have are those of our own making, and they're no good at all. But when, in humility, we confess our sins, then God gives us the clothes that actually do the job that's needed, and and give us righteousness and salvation.
1: Absolutely. You're either adorned in your own garments that you think are great, which Isaiah um, says are nothing before God but filthy, polluted rags, or you are adorned in the beauty and splendor and majesty of the garment that God has provided for you, the blood of the Lamb that covers your sin head to toe that you may be without spot, stain, wrinkle, or blemish.
0: Hmm. So, as you pointed out toward the beginning, so far we've been talking about Israel praising, and that's the language that we've been using singing, music, dancing. The Lord now has taken pleasure in his people. He's adorning the humble with salvation. Verse 5 let the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Again, more of the same language. But then there's a shift in verse 6 let the high praises of God be in their throats, and two-edged swords in their hands." And then from there, that language of warfare starts to take over. What, what's happening here as the psalm makes this transition?
1: And here's where I think, remembering the context and what we've seen so far in the prophecies of Zephaniah and Jeremiah, why we place this psalm, as being sung on the way out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem, because what we have here is a processional. God's people are indeed free from their enemies. They are. But they are not yet fully in the presence of God back in the promised land, which We'll find out if you read if you read the Old Testament. Um, yeah, when they get back there, God's promise is not the same, actually, because. Uh, he does not dwell. The ark is not there. His name is not there. And even when the temple is rebuilt, you have those who are mourning and and uh, saying, this is not like the former things in Ezra because God is not present. And you have those who are rejoicing that don't remember the days before they t- were taken in exile where God's name was there. And like, this is awesome. But you actually find out that th- the promise is, is not here and now. In fact, for 400 years, God remains silent even though they return. So the greater reality then is is that as they are marching back toward, toward that land of promise where God once put his name, they are to be ready for battle. I mean, this is the same thing that God had given them to do when they were rebuilding the, the city wall in Nehemiah 4. He actually has that recorded in, in verse 17. God does this, those who were building the wall carried the burdens and loads uh, in one hand of of all the labor, and held a weapon in the other. Why would you hold a weapon? Well, you're free, but you're also could be attacked by your enemies as you walk along the road, and so, in this whole aspect, it is your your yours is the victory. They they're they're overcome. But we're still not in the final consummation of that victory where it's the full unbridled celebration. We're only in procession on the way back. And so you need to be ready. This is the same warfare that Paul himself urges us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, to undergo and be ready for. He says in chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice, This is the Lord, the strength, his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God. And he talks about the whole armor of God and standing firm until that great day when when all of these things are overcome. And you stand then with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the gospel shoes of peace and readiness. You stand with the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith that, ex- that extinguishes the flaming darts and, of course, the sword of the spirit, the two-edged sword, which you see mentioned here in, in 6. The two-edged sword, the very living word of God, because, quite frankly, um, we have won the war... But those who um, have been defeated are still coming after. You know, think of the the the, the world wars when when um, enemy nations, Japan and things like that, Germany were defeated and we had to send out messengers to say, hey, buddy, the war is over. Well, uh, the war is over, but the fact of the matter is the messenger can still get shot, right? And that's what this whole thing is, is all about. Be ready because you're gonna be in the midst of battle. Well, same thing with us here and now. Christ has come. He has crushed the head of the serpent, and he has ascended to the Father's right hand to intercede for us upon his ascension. No, Father, I died for that one, not that one. Do not give that one judgment. Rather, forgive them all their sins. And God says, I forgive you. But As we wait for that great and glorious day, that triumphal return, that second Palm Sunday with the palm branch in our hand, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to connect it back to Revelation 7, where God himself will be our shepherd and shelter us with his presence. In the meantime, we need to be prepared because the devil is going to attack. And the way that the devil likes to attack is twofold. Temptation and accusation. Temptation... In the fact like, oh, come on, it's really not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it. It's fine. It can't be that bad. Just go on, indulge. You want to do this? Go on. And so we're enticed. We are allured by the devil, by the world in our own sinful flesh to live as if we mattered most and God didn't matter at all. And when we fall into temptation, then the devil shoots his flaming darts at you. I thought you were the child of God. How could you do this? Children of God don't do this and say such things like this. Doesn't look like you're a child of God to me. It looks like you're more of a child of mine. And we both know where children of mine end up in hell with me. Right? All of these, all of these things. But we are to put on the whole armor of God and stand in Christ's adornment. His battle armor of salvation so when the devil attacks we can wield that shield of faith because what happens to a a flaming arrow when it hits a metal shield nothing it bounces off it doesn't burn up at all right it doesn't do that and then you can swing that double-edged sword of the spirit back of the devil and say yeah i admit death and hell but i, I deserve it but one of it i know one who has suffered and made satisfaction for me his name is jesus christ son of god where he says he is There I shall be also, for he has promised it. You could sing and mock the devil. Though devils are the world, should. we tremble not, we fear no will. You know, all of these different things, it is a constant battle, and the devil wants to seek us, to draw us away from Christ, but we stand firm in the righteous adornment of God's armor of salvation that he gives to us.
0: Mm. Yeah, Satan, hear this proclamation, I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation, I am not so soon enticed. Now that to the font I have traveled, all your might has come unraveled, and against your tyranny, God my Lord unites with me. There's that, that image of God dwelling with us in holy baptism, it's so important. That is the reason for this victory. So, and I think this is really important, because otherwise we might get the wrong idea from these verses, that this is somehow the the Church taking vengeance into her own hands, but that's really not what's going on at all. This is simply the Church continuing to proclaim the victory that Christ has won, the vengeance that He brings about. It's not, it's not the Church taking it into her hands, it's the Church resting in what what Christ has already done.
1: Absolutely. This is God in the Church, at work for the Church, at work through the Church. But it is not I but Christ in me. And that's the biggest aspect of this. This is where you can get into the, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not me who does it. It's Christ who does it through his word. And all I am doing is holding fast that word of Christ. Let the godly exalt in glory. Well, that's the proclamation. Here's what God has done for me. Here's the, and that's where it really connects to the glad singing in the earlier verses, the dancing, the things like that, because that is what the people of God are doing in, in terms of bringing about the sword and executing vengeance on the nations and binding their king, their, their kings in, in chains and, and fetters, you know uh, it, It's actually just proclaiming um, the king, the Lord who is in their midst, who has fought for his people, the mighty one to save, who rejoices over his people and quiets them with his love.
0: Hmm. You know, I, I think, and I can't remember when we've talked about this recently on Sharper Iron, I think it was in the context of one of the Psalms, or, or maybe it was in the book of Revelation, I'm, I'm not sure. But the, you know, this, this image of both singing and warfare showing up in Psalm 149 reminds me of what happens with King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20, where he goes out to war, and, and he's got the promise that the Lord's going to fight for him. And so he actually sends the the singers out in front of the army, and it's almost like that's what's happening here in Psalm 149. We're, we're singing, and then the weapons are mentioned later, because the, the victory's really already been won. We're already singing for the victory that God's brought about, and now it's mentioned here at the end of the psalm, almost in the same way that, that Jehoshaphat leads his army out there in Second Chronicles chapter 20.
1: That's exactly what I would see in the Second Chronicles chapter 20, and... Even, even in connection with this, I would, also, I would also offer to the dear people of God to connect one of those other puzzle pieces uh, to see God's, God's great story of our life in Christ here. It would also be to the, the walls of Jericho and the shouting blasts of the trumpet that break. I mean, that's not a big, how does a, you know, and yet God topples that walls with that that blast of the trumpet. So shall it be at the last day. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we who are mortal shall be changed. This perishable out body will put on the imperishable, the mortal immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But, pfft. Whatever. Thanks be to our God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Mm. Another another passage that comes to my mind in this connection is, again, from the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, after Satan has been thrown down from heaven, John hears that voice from heaven, and, and he, he hears, "...now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God." And this is the verse, I think, that connects to Psalm 149. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I mean, you've talked about how, how in this life we do still face the danger, the enemies are still there, and yet they've been defeated. And it's in holding on to the word of the testimony, the blood of the Lamb, that we win that victory even if we die in this life, and I think that verse from Revelation 12 connects as well.
1: Uh, Absolutely. It is beautiful, it is marvelous, a sheer proclamation of our hope that we have in Christ, the victory that is ours, and we just simply get to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of his salvation.
0: Now, sometimes this, this talk of, you know, the Lord executing vengeance, punishments on the peoples, executing the judgment that is written as we pray the Psalms today can, can cause Christians a little bit of discomfort. You know, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. How does a prayer like this fit into that desire of the Lord that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth?
1: Our Lord does desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is that reality, and so he will continue to do his saving work among us. That sign, that banner of the cross will go forth, held uh, high by the church and proclaimed intimately through our day-to-day lives, our lives in Christ. And yet the day is also coming, and the reality existed even in Jesus' day, where not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God. Pharaoh himself, in the Old Song, had ample time to see the great, marvelous work of God, and yet he hardened his heart to the point where we get to the the matter of fact that in the last plagues, essentially it says, the Lord hardens his heart, which basically means, in connection with Romans 1, it says... Fine, Pharaoh, you do what I'm going to do. It's like God looking at you and saying, fine, Pharaoh, you do what you do. I'm going to do what I do. I told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to be saving my people this way. You could be a part of that, but if you're going to go do what you want to do, you want to be obstinate, you want to walk away from all of that, you want to be all this, then here's what my sign will serve to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But there are those who will be standing outside in their own garments, you know, having not had oil in their lamp to connect to the end of the church here in the parable, who go to try to buy from a merchant, who actually come in, and that that whole time that Lord has been compassionate, that Lord has been merciful, that Lord has been, been going on forward and trying to find those who are lost, but when that judgment comes and the door is shut, it's not like our Lord when he arrives with those 10 virgins says, okay, where are the other five? Well, I'm going to leave you five behind now and I'm going to go and I'm going to seek those other fives and I'm going to carry on them into my shoulder that I may, I may enter in with everybody. Sadly, that call has been for them all along, but they haven't been watchful. They haven't been vigilant. They have abandoned the word of the Lord. And so when the final hour comes, while God desires all people to be saved and that mercy of the cross is for all people, if you refuse to hear, the fact of the matter is there is a separation of sheep from goats. There is a closing of the door, those who remain inside the kingdom of God and those whom God says depart from me i never knew you and i think this is the sorrowful thing as jesus marches to his ministry through the end of this ministry because in matthew at the start of it in luke it's all like oh i've come to seek and save the lost. i've come to call uh, sinners and all this sort of stuff but by the time we get to the end of his ministry he says oh jerusalem jerusalem you who stone the prophets how i have longed to gather you as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings but you would not and then he tells that parable of, of the virgins, and so there's just that outside and those who are in, and he continues to call until the day where he returns. If you still have a pulse, hear the word of the Lord and return to him.
0: Hmm. Pastor Philip, we have about two minutes here on the morning. Help us to wrap things up on Psalm
1: 149. Absolutely. Psalm 149 is a beautiful articulation of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. God. Our king is in our midst. He has crushed the head of the serpent, and he is all about restoring us at long last to to what was lost all the way back in Genesis, the very presence of God. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to rejoice over us with gladness and quiet us with his love. And yet, at the same time, we're just not there yet. The victory is ours, and we're marching ever closer to that day and that hour and that place. Where and when? Uh, Nobody knows. Only the Father in heaven. In the meantime, the Lord has given us his armor of salvation, that we may stand in his processional as his people, marching into the presence of God, adorned as a bride for her husband clothed and in our white garments of salvation, the blood of the Lamb, and finally at long last when he returns, enter in to the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that has no end.
0: The Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He is also the author of the recently released book, Life in Christ, rooted, woven, and grafted into God's story, available from Concordia Publishing House. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 149. Pastor Philippeck, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you, always a
0: privilege. Praise the Lord. The Psalms invite us to do this. The Psalms teach us how to do this, not only Psalm 149, but in all of the Psalms that we have looked at during this month of July, we have learned to pray and praise and give thanks to the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for journeying through these Psalms with us here on Sharp Iron during the month of July. Starting in the month of August, we will be jumping into the book of Ecclesiastes, so please join us. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.